This is Arnold Kunert, and I'm here with Ray Harryhausen, Randy Cook, Bill Tippett, and Stephen Smith. And Stephen Smith is the brilliant author of the Bernard Herrmann biography. We're listening to the opening music for Bernard Herrmann's score for the film. Stephen, a little word about this score. Certainly. This is the first of four films that uh, Bernard Herrmann worked on with Ray Harryhausen. And for many people, this is one of the iconic fantasy film scores. Uh, there's King Kong by Steiner, uh, Waxman's Bride of Frankenstein, and uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And uh, it's a, a score that remains extremely influential some 50 years later. And we can talk about it more later, but I think it's worth mentioning that Bernard Herrmann loved to create very individual scores, often using unusual instruments for each movie, approaching each film as a very separate project. In this case, he really didn't use any outlandish or unorthodox instruments. He used a very large orchestra, and he added members of the percussion to it to give it a very full, rich sound, and as we'll hear later, to give the various creatures a real sense of grandeur and menace. But it's an example of how Herrmann could take a conventional orchestra, uh, give or take a few players, and create something so original, something that looks back to the music of, say, Rimsky-Korsakov and Scheherazade, but also is so uh, brilliantly original. And he was giving each of the creatures their own identifying theme, wasn't That's he? right. We can talk about that later. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't create big musical themes, but he certainly creates individual compositions that are unique in Absolutely. their instrumentation. And, uh, and this is the first time the word dynamation appeared on the screen for any of Ray's films, even though the technique had been something that Ray had designed years before this. And we saw Nathan Duran's name there as a director. This is the second of three films that you did with Nathan Jerry Duran. That's correct. Yes. Why was he your one of your? I think he was your favorite director of all. Well, the ones he you was worked. because he was a former art director and he knew my problems. Some directors just uh, had no idea of, of what my problems would be, and that if the camera was moved another foot this way or that way or up or down, it could cost uh, you know three times as much mm. to do the scene. So I had to be on the set. And some directors resented that. Of course. But life is that way. Take the bitter with the sour, as Sam Golden said. Well, you were, the, you were the gentleman who kept getting in the way of the other directors, uh, with the exception of Jerry and one or two others. But um, you and he got along because his background had been production design, and he understood your talent and, and vice versa. So yes. there was no conflict there. Right? And, uh, uh, you know, the, you don't want a director who... Uh, the directors on our pictures... Are, are not the creators in the European sense of the word. That's right. Uh, we tr The directors on our picture, it's necessary to get the best out of the actors. Exactly. And you were very involved with the, the, the concept for this movie and the whole pre-production process long before a director was ever brought on board. Oh, yes, long before. I made eight big drawings, and then I, I made a, a three-page outline of how they could be used in a film. I took them all over Hollywood, and nobody was interested. And they said, costume pictures are dead. Howard Hughes had just made uh, Son of Sinbad, and it laid an egg because it was not a very good picture. And that was three years before this film was even made, so you couldn't even get this off the ground in 1955 or No, they said costume it. films were dead, mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't believe that. And I took it to Edward Small, who later made Jack the Giant Killer. Dare we say that title? Uh, I mean, it's uh, embarrassing. It is, yes. But... Uh, 
with the same cast and the same director and the same and director, and, the same and, director. And, and some of the same creature designs almost <laughs> not quite yes not quite mm. but i couldn't get past the secretary when i took my drawings to him but did you also come up with an outline or any you know oh, yes, story a, 20, uh, a basic outline but when we got kenneth cobe uh, the outline uh, shifted a bit, but there, the, the basics were still there. So how did that, that production process work? Would, would it be like a normal kind of a development deal where you it would... It went through many changes. So it, initially the the Columbia would put up a little bit of money for a writer and they would, yes, that would be the sole that, person working on the script? Yes, based on my drawings. That helped sell the idea to Columbia when Charles showed them the drawings. And uh, because these are basically visual pictures, and the drawings make it, uh, people can understand drawings much easier than if they take the time to read a script. <laughs> now, this so, is, go ahead, go ahead. Well, so were you involved with, with many of the revisions of the script as Kolb uh, was writing it oh, to make yes. sure that it... Well, he would write 10 pages, and Charles and I and Kolb and would get together and, and uh, make changes on it and design as suggestions, and then he would rewrite them and... And the picture was developed that way. Hmm. Seeing this film at at eight at age seven when this came out, this nothing like this had ever been made. No, uh, which was such a thrill, and it was a thrill to be there to see you know to see the the beginning well, of a new uh, kind of picture making. Well, films of this nature, but hmm. particularly made by the Italians, were all. Uh, Muscle men pictures right. and sort of cups and rubbers and baggy pants. Well, even the Hollywood films that were supposedly about Sinbad had no creatures in them. They were, you said they were just referring to the creatures here and there, but they didn't. They were always off stage. Always yes. off stage. They had been there, but they were gone now. Well, I wanted to show them on the screen from the creature point of view. Well, and what we're about to see here, too, is like the seminal. This is the scene, the lightning bolt that just influenced so many people today. You Absolutely. Know, the Lucases, the Spielbergs, the. Peter Jackson's everybody working in in uh, visual effects. Well, the creature coming out of the cave is an iconic image with Ray, and it's probably, if not his most famous or most popular image. No, this uh, still on. still this works is, today. This, is, just, this it, is the the most wonderful design of uh, for a creature that I've ever seen. It doesn't get any better than this. Yeah, we were in San Rafael, Phil, and it went and, through uh, many changes, mm -hmm, like a yeah. butterfly, you know. First he had two horns, then he had one eye, and then he had two eyes. And uh, I, I gave him a uh, one leg, uh, both legs, as a like a centaur, uh -huh. uh, well, rather a satyr. Well, I must uh, say you knew when to stop because uh, it, it's it's just it's ideal. And when he appears, it's and even though the advertising art had shown the image, when he appears, as you just about to here, it's an astonishing image. Well, and again, you know, creatures creatures had been portrayed in, in films by men in costumes, uh, but uh, humanoid creatures had never been done, save for, uh, at least I don't believe, uh, in, in uh, Western movies, uh, had been done in stop motion, except for, you know, Kong and dinosaurs and gorillas, basically, was the province of stop motion. Yes, that's why I gave him a satyr's legs, yeah. because I didn't want anybody to think there was a man in a costume. There were undoubtedly people who still did. I'm oh, afraid yes. at that time, there that people who were not knowledgeable about stop motion. They probably still figured it was a very clever costume. Well, a man couldn't bend his legs the way of the sit. No, yeah. but you remember what happened with Golden Void. Someone thought that the uh, 
the Kali creature was a man in a costume, so it, suit, that was yeah. serious. Yeah. But all the, all this that's going on at once, you know, mysterious magician, genie coming out of a magic lamp, a, a, a creature the likes of which you've never seen before, wonderful Easter Island Easter Island type art direction. I mean, this is and and the great score going on and and Torin Thatcher, you know, I mean, the whole thing is just it was just hitting us uh, kids when this thing came out with one punch after another. The location photography. Everything about it was so new, uh, and it's almost hard to imagine uh, now in a day when everybody is making Ray Harryhausen pictures. But this is, th or trying to, but this was, you know, this was just an amazing, uh, as Phil says, seminal uh, Well, nothing uh, like picture. it had been put Ever. on the screen. No, nothing at all. And the, this, the closest thing would have been the Thief of Baghdad that Corda made. Right. And that was almost 20 years earlier. Yeah, this was your first feature-length color film. You had shot in color with your fairy tales and a little bit from Animal World, but this was your first feature-length film, so it must have been quite a thrill, as well as probably a little bit uh, scary for you to shoot this. Wasn't it? Well, it wasn't. Well, no, wasn't scary? Uh, it's just I knew it would take time. Take time, and, and more we were time, on huh? very tight budgets, and I was afraid, you know, we're going to have uh, this is going to take twice as long because you have to send the rushes back to the laboratory because they're in color mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't develop color in my dark room. This beach is located where, Ray? This beach is up near uh, uh, Sagaro, near San Falu in Spain. On the coast of Spain. On the coast of Brava, yes. Mm -hmm. Do you recall the, the creation of the Cyclops voice? That's one of the great things about his character is this really you know, signature roar that he's got that doesn't feel like a man or a lion or... Yes, no, I don't recall that the sound effect department put that in. But the sound effects on your pictures were almost always, you know, top-notch, too, and that's, yeah. it's not often... often well, we, uh, we, they submit two or three versions of, of sound effects, and then we pick out the ones we feel would be most appropriate. Yeah, the, the Cyclops voice Cyclops really scream. fits. Yeah, oh, it's great, yeah. isn't it? I had an audio tape that I made of this off TV when I was a boy, and and Me too. Uh, played it back then. Played it back. <laughs> we didn't have pictures, I know, I so know we it. had to do sound. I know, and I, but I played it till the ferrous oxide was covering my my floor. But the uh, but but I played it back at the wrong speed once, and it just sounded like somebody uh, screaming. But really, yeah, huh. uh, we're mic too close to do it now. But that's that sounds like you know, play it back faster and see what it sounds like. It was so perfect. We were so grateful to get Torn Thatcher because he knew just how much to go over the top. And, you know, this is a fairy tale, a fantasy, and you need somebody who knows just where to stop, and he knew that. And he was a very well-respected actor from... <laughs> from England, From yes. England. Uh, Stephen, Bernard Herman was actually brought to this project by Charles Schneer, who had... Well, you explain how this all came about. It's That's better. right. Uh, Charles Schneer uh, apparently had a very good memory when it came to Bernard Herrmann because Herrmann had gotten his start uh, really as a composer at CBS in the 1930s. He uh, worked on a number of programs. He scored Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air series that really launched them both on their Hollywood careers. But Herrmann had also written music in 1937 for a series called The Columbia Workshop, and it was a wonderfully experimental program and every week it was different. It was really an anthology series uh, that would be dramatizing poetry or unusual stories. And Herman pretty much had carte blanche to use the musicians and create whatever kind of music he wanted. And this was really one of his first forays 
into fantasy composing in a way. He later said he learned how to be a film composer or a composer in film by scoring hundreds, if not thousands, of radio programs. Well, Char Charles Schneer was a great fan of that program, the Columbia Workshop. And some 20 years later, exactly 20 years later, in fact, he asked, uh, he approached Herman about working on this film. And uh, it, it really did come full circle because later Herman used a little bit of music that he had written for the Columbia Workshop in a, a later Harryhausen film, Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> he was very good at uh, taking, not, not stealing, but taking some <laughs> musical ideas, let's say, that he had created at an astonishingly, astonishingly early age and utilizing them when he knew it was appropriate. But uh, uh, according to what Mr. Schneer told me, uh, Benny, as he was known to many of his friends, or Bernie, uh, turned down this film. But then, as, as Schneer said, the first word out of Herman's mouth was usually no. He was a, a rather contrary personality, a real softy when you got to know him. Uh, a, a brilliant man, a sensitive man with a great intellectual and instinctive uh, capacity as an artist. But outside, he could be kind of a tough customer. And uh, Schneer and uh, Mr. Harryhausen were... Uh, persistent apparently and finally got him to say yes although Benny did see this film for the first time in a, a, a black and white, black and white uh, yeah. work print that uh, Schneer said didn't have any of, of you know the, the, the you know the, the sense of magic and texture that we know the movie to have but um, Herman was often very excited by fantasy projects and really this inaugurated a glorious period in his career of writing music for fantasy films in addition to the other Harryhausen films we have from the same period, his score for Journey to the Center of the Earth, and we have the magnificent music that he wrote for the Twilight Zone television series that really, I think, ranks uh, right up there with the best of his film work. So really, this movie may have made that possible by directing him into a genre that he had, had touched on in the past with films like The Day the Earth Stood Still or The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, but really hadn't explored in, in any uh, great amount. Excellent. Now, we're on location here, Ray, in Granada at yeah. this point, the Alhambra. And you said that uh, because of the tourists, even though there weren't that many tourists to deal with at that time, you still, you and Wilkie Cooper and Charles and Nathan Duran had to shoot the interiors at night, although some of the exteriors correct, we're seeing yeah. here. But this was, again, a very, uh, makes the film look even more lavish, but it's, it's because it's on location. It's not a, a studio set in Hollywood. It's actually in... We were going originally to the Middle East, but there was a lot of turmoil there, uh, as there usually is. And so we gave that up and decided to shoot it in Spain because of the uh, architecture, architecture in, uh, in Spain. So but it lifts the film immediately from a studio-bound project that people of that era were doing. They were always doing backlot films. This, this immediately lifts you into a different period, and it gives it an authenticity that you probably couldn't have gotten anywhere else other than something like this. Yeah. Yes, well, uh, we were so grateful. And I, I couldn't believe it when we got Bernie Herman to do the score because uh, when I first heard that Charles knew him and, and they could, it was the first score we had that was written especially for the film. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's right. what this type of film needs. I learned that from King Kong, uh, a film that's based on pantomime rather than dialogue is very necessary to have the right kind of music. And this was, this was the first of uh, your pictures that were shot in Europe. And, uh, it's your first European film, yeah? First you of shot many. 20 million. Yes. 
Oh well, yeah, we shot that. twenty yeah. million. Some background players, yeah, yeah. right. yeah. a little bit of that. Yeah. But the first shot, the first shot of Baghdad, the establisher was a was a matte painting, which uh, well, that was, was from night, another night. picture. Oh, was it? Oh, I didn't know. No, that I didn't know. I didn't even know even the matte painting was a stock shot. Oh no, really? Piece of stock footage we used. It was called Baghdad, so we used it. So what, do you recall what the oh. shooting schedule was for the live I action on this? I recall yeah. it so long ago, good heavens. And the, the budget for the entire picture? It was a quickie. We, we uh, shot it. Uh, we had a lot of problems because we were one of the first uh, companies to shoot in Spain. They were shooting uh, something with a big gun, what was it called? Pride and the Passion. The Standard Pride and the Passion. Mm -hmm. They were shooting opposite uh, that, that uh, time. And... Uh, we got a uh, uh, permission to use the the, uh, uh, the uh, Alhambra, Alhambra in Granada, which uh, you can't get now, I don't think. No, we visited the Alhambra, but you can't. I don't think you can shoot. I don't a film think they will near. shoot because some another crew damaged some of the uh, oh. walls. I heard by uh, and uh, they've. They won't let people shoot in there. No, yours, your, Phil was asking your total budget was somewhere around $650,000. The whole point. picture ended whole up film, with yeah. $650,000, right. which you can't buy a costume today. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of costumes, here we are with a variation on the opening credit theme by Herman inside. And this is actually inside the Alhambra. Wilkie Cooper shot this in the night, at, at night after the tourists had left, I'm assuming. So all this is... Real. This is not a studio. Well, set. we were fortunate to be able to get the costumes from a picture that was never made uh, at Columbia. Yeah. And these costumes were made for a Rita Hayworth picture, and it was never made. So uh, we were able to use the costume. Well, we should be grateful to Rita for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But beautiful costumes, and it perfectly matches the background yes. setting. Beautiful. Listening to Herman's music, it might be worth pointing out that he usually uses the higher strings with the the the, the more heroic or likable characters. The princess has that beautiful ethereal theme, and as we heard earlier with the cyclops, there we were, we heard the timpani and uh, and, and the low brass, and uh, he he seems to choose his instruments uh, depending on how he feels about the characters. And there's a wonderful composition coming up here that I know you're going to want to talk about for non-musical reasons, but it's a, a brilliant <laughs> musical portrait as well of a character I would say to listen for. This upcoming scene gave me the heebie-jeebies when I was a kid. Anything with snakes is tending to, to give people the... Well, it was the, the blue four-armed woman. The, the four-armed woman, the snakes, not so much, but the blue, the, the four-armed woman might have done it. It's funny. I always reacted to monsters, of, of, of raised monsters. Just, they they never creeped me out. They always, they always were just so thrillingly unusual that I got very, very worked up, you know? <laughs> I got real... Uh, just thrilled by him, you know. I was never, I was never scared by any of your creatures. Well, there's something in here that's coming up that that really weirds oh, me I, out. Oh, and I that's understand. A, cutting away to the close-up of her, of yeah. the live actor's yeah. face, yeah. and the juxtaposition of the stop-motion character cutting with the, the, uh, the, um, the live actor is she doesn't something seem, unsettling. She, she about doesn't it. seem to be not enjoying it. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Well, that's a very clear background plate. And uh, the foreground is the animation, of course, but beautiful, matching. 
Right, when you were assembling the, the entire movie over the period of time that it took to do the visual effects work, how would these shots be represented in the cut? Did you have the background plate as you were going to be adding the visual well, we, effect I, or just I a slug? I storyboarded the whole sequence, and so we knew just where the background plates were necessary. So we would shoot those the last after the actors were taken care but of. But in the actual assembly of the cut, as you're building the, yes. the replacing shots with your shots, did you just have black slug, or would you have a, a print of the back, empty background plate without We'd the monster? We'd have a cut of the empty background okay. plate, yes, if I remember correctly. Now, this is what you were talking about, Phil, where the, the uh, tail of the yes, when snake she was, creature. When she was happy dancing, yes. that's what bothers she's, me. Yeah, she's, she's, she <laughs> seems way. a little happy here, too. too. <laughs> she's happy that's over, yeah. Well, isn't everybody that can <laughs> yeah. be turned into a snake woman? <laughs> But see, that's a magic that I think is very important in a picture of this nature. Now, you told me that Torrin Thatcher had objections to shaving what is usually a very realistic-looking bald head uh, and, and wore a bald cap for how much of the picture, Ray? Well, half of it. He, really? He got tired of shaving his head, so he used, wow. well, he used a bald wig for a while. Yeah. And then uh, he got tired of that and, and shaved his head. <laughs> But he had just the right over the, uh, slightly over the top for this type of character. Oh, he's wonderful in it. Yeah. He's really, I, I, he's really my favorite villain in in uh, any of your pictures. Uh, I, and 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 I must say, uh, speaking of the actors, Kerwin Matthews is is such a. It, one, you know, he's a wonderful stalwart, uh, you know, well, you know, actor with a great, great voice. Not a, not a great range, but he, he, but he's a wonderful Sinbad. I think. Yeah, I think he's a wonderful. I get a lot of fan letters saying they prefer Kerwin to the other Sinbads. He's just, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really. It may be a one-note performance, but it's absolutely the right note. And he always went on record as saying that this was one of his favorite films because he had a chance to work with Ray, who was a, a great idol of his. He loved Ray's work. Well, work. Not, on the technical level, he certainly, you know, uh, uh, believes he be makes you believe that he's seeing those creatures. Yes, he had a strong way of looking at people, uh, nothing in the eye. Yeah. And uh, that was done through rehearsals and... And uh, the very next film after this for you was The Three Worlds of Gulliver, yes, also with Kerwin Matthews. So, yes. And he was one of the handful of actors who worked with you more than one time, just very few. But he was perfect for this. He, he looked appropriate. And um, he enjoyed himself. That was the best part of all. He, he never looked back on this film as something that uh, was unpleasant or out of place for him. He, I think he enjoyed it more than anything else. Yeah, I've always loved the conviction uh, that you feel in this film. You feel it in the actors. You certainly feel it in Bernard Herrmann's music. Mm. Here's someone who started his career with Citizen Kane and worked in many dramas, but in no way is he ever condescending. And he was so proud of this movie. He would frequently mm. show excerpts of it when lecturing and recorded excerpts of it and talked about it often. And you can just listen to it and tell. And that's one thing I think Herman always brought to films, but it was particularly useful in fantasy was the sense of uh, emotional reality from that first sequence of the sailors in the fog. I mean, you really, he's playing the, the anxiety there. And it's something you absolutely relate to on an emotional level. And yes, as, as here and in the, with the characters, he'll enhance the fantasy and, and go for sometimes grotesque or extreme effects. 
but underpinning it all is a real commitment to the material and making you feel that you're on this adventure. And I always remember reacting as a, as a boy to 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 the sort of uh, sweet sadness that he had in his music, and, and there's a feeling of something that there, there's a feeling of something lost, you know. When, Absolutely. You know, and and I know the Disney boys didn't think that kids responded to that, but kids respond to that very well indeed. And 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 there's an ache about his music that that even from my very earliest years, I I, I found very moving in these pictures and always remembered. I remember reading a review in the Chicago newspapers when this was released. It was Christmas of 58, and uh, almost 50 years ago at this point. And one of the reviewers mentioned that Herman's, at least his opening score music, opening title music, and one or two other scenes was reminiscent of Rumsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade, and that immediately led me to the nearest record store to find <laughs> Scheherazade because I wanted to to know what Bernard Herrmann's at least partial inspiration was. I'm sure he wasn't copying uh, Rimsky-Korsakov by any means, but certainly there was an inspiration there. So that led me to a different level of appreciation for music. Uh, so I, I think this is, this is probably true of a lot of composers, but certainly Herman and Alfred Newman uh, and uh, Franz Waxman and a handful of others. Look at this. Let's describe this scene. This, right? this, the mat on this is so tight. I saw it recently on HD, and, and of course, many of you listening to this now will be seeing it on Blu-ray. I'm assuming, and the the mat is really, really tight. It's really good. It holds up beautifully. What did What did you do? What's How did you make How did you make that magic happen? Well, we pulled the camera back, and uh, and from at an angle, uh, so that the. Uh, the, the basis of the arm was always at that same level, and it was all laid out that way so that uh, the camera was gradually pulled back, and that gave the, the illusion that the hand was shrinking. Now, that's a, a really hard kind of a pullback mm -hmm. shot to mm -hmm. get, just for those of you out there. You know, you really don't know how hard it is to level Level the a track. track. Thank you. In the olden days, when this was done, you didn't have the repositioning tools that you have today. And for that arm to lock into that background, it had to be done one way. <laughs> lots lots of time, lots of wedges, lots of uh, spirit levels. Oh, yes. One spirit level and, and, a, and a lot of wedges very sensitively applied. And look at this. I mean, that's, a, I guess, a static mat, but one of the most, you know, uh, she's she's mad. See, that pillow was about uh, seventy feet wide. <laughs> <laughs> Did you shoot that in in Spain yeah, as well? We well, shot it in a stage from a distance and and uh, last toward the end. But you didn't know none of the principal photography back in the United States. It was all done in Spain. Except Richard Eyre. Richard Eyre was filmed over here. Yeah, oh, he was. Uh, yeah. Inside the magic lamp was uh, over right. here. But a lot of it was filmed. Uh, the traveling mats were all filmed in England because they had this wonderful process, blue backing process. But even this, the background shot here, that's the Alhambra still. This that's, is still in the Alhambra. Yeah, it's yeah. remarkable and just maintains yeah. that level of authenticity that you were looking for. No, we, we used uh, the Alhambra as much as we could. This, that's the Alhambra there. It's still part of the the actual location. Wonderful you had access to that because it just lifts the film at this point to a different level that wasn't 
Well, look at all the scene. detailing on the walls, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you know. It would have been impossible to recreate this anywhere. And even this is it at the Alhambra mm -hmm. on the entrance. It's interesting that you had never met Richard Iyer until a few years ago. No, I didn't. When he, after he'd grown he up. Played the genie. Oh, played my. the genie. And uh, Richard had a nice career in the 50s doing this film and The Invisible Boy and Friendly Persuasion, but he and Ray had never met because he had to do all of his photography here in the States. Yes, we had a double in Spain because we shot it some years, uh, months, many months before. Mm -hmm. So Kerwin and Catherine Grant and Torrin Thatcher and the other supporting actors were in Spain with you, but Richard, yes. Richard was not among them. Torrin Thatcher, yes. Tell us quickly what must be done. There is one secret potion which will remove the evil charm. Mix the potion with no more delay. We lack the well, we have to go to Colossa mm -hmm. to get the potion, I'm afraid, and we, we can't just mix it here locally. It's, uh, <laughs> it's going to involve a voyage back to that island. Do you recall anything about developing uh, Torrin Thatcher's accent for this, what that was based on? No, that, that was all his, yeah. He developed that himself. This was it's your got that Mid-Eastern tinge to it, which mm. is, but, but it's not heavy-handed. Yeah, it's just we, slight. We didn't want it too English. This was your first of six films with Wilkie Cooper, the, yes. D, the DP, the cinematographer. And um, obviously you got along well with Wilkie because he understood what you were looking for. And when we get to the colossal, the colossal caves, uh, his lighting on those was... was yes, because he knew... Uh, how the lighting would deteriorate, and he mm -hmm. balanced for that Beautiful. when we projected it. So the plates were background plates for the visual effects work that you did were shot differently with a, what, a little bit hotter or...? Uh, some of them were uh, specially developed. For example, uh, when we went to Mallorca, he dropped the light, the net broke that was carrying the lights, so he lost two or three lights that were very important. So he had to light the cage Un, with underlighting, and then he asked them to overdevelop it in the lab to compensate for it. The Caliph of Baghdad has offered you full pardon. He offers us a choice of two kinds of death. Our favorite big, big dumb Lenny Golar, who has one, who has one line over and over, which is, "That's right, that's right." <laughs> Everybody loves Golar. His wife was uh, the the uh, lady who took care of the costumes. <laughs> There you go. Now, many of these actors here are Spanish actors, and their, their dialogue is being... Yeah. Except for Danny Green, Luke. who's yeah, the Danny pirate Green. leader, who's a, who's a great, you know, great British supporting player. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the Lady Killers, among others. That's right. We had to use uh, different stock shots of the long shots of the ship because mm. we couldn't afford a tank shot. But you ne but in never having a tank shot in here, you've got it's all real, you know, which is which is well, from, stock shot from, or not, it's all natural ocean. Yeah, or apparently so. That a rich prize is plying a coastal. Now were scenes on the ship sh uh, shot in Barcelona Harbor? Is that where yes, you did most of Yes, it was anchored in Barcelona anchored Harbor. In Barcelona. We took it out the first day and almost capsized. So they wouldn't take it out after that. We oh. had to shoot everything in the harbor. So Nathan Duran would put the, the ship or the set on a gimbal and make it look like the yeah. ship was tilting back and forth. This was all on a gimbal. Mm -hmm. hmm. 
Well, there's that theme, and there's some of the some of the nice, some very nice, you know, uh, staging. Your eye lines. I mean, this 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 again would probably seem simple to people now, but for him to look in the right place, and for her to walk around the table and twirl around, and him to be following her all in in one in one long take, you know, is uh, <laughs> is really quite, you know. It, it, you take it for granted watching it, but it's quite an achievement. You know, it's... And this is one of Bernard Herrmann's more beautiful mm. themes from the film. It's yes. Dedicated to Catherine Grant's character. And as with Herrmann, it's it's half the theme and half the orchestration. And Herrmann mm. always insisted on doing his own orchestrations, that is, choosing what instrument would be playing what part, which can be extremely elaborate and time-consuming when you think about all the parts in the orchestra. And that was unusual for composers at the time. It certainly is, it remains unusual, but Herman felt that orchestration was as critical to writing music as simply what notes the musicians were going to be playing. So when you hear those ethereal, that, that those high strings playing her theme, or you hear the, uh, uh, the various combinations he's going to utilize for the creatures coming up or indeed his very inventive scoring of the fight scene on the on the ship with percussion mm -hmm. it's really the instruments he's choosing along with because if you if you listen to a piece like this the the figures that we hear in in the brass they almost come down to just chords at times but it's the mutes that he's choosing and so many other things that are so critical to the success of the music now how did i've got to ask you how did how did those grapes happen they look so good i remember they look so real well, that don't was say a big plate though. oversized plate i understand and yeah. i know it but i mean what are they made out of i, I, mean, I don't know what they, the grapes were made they're, out of they're, they're they're just terrific yeah they you they know look real yeah i was i i was really knocked out by that when i was a kid too because they are so convincing you know, and I'm glad you didn't say bowling balls. No, no. Well, well, she, she would have, she'd have a big bandage on her toe if they'd been bowling balls. Was all the um, outsized uh, prop material designed by the Spanish uh, designers, or was that something done in Hollywood? No, that was over? done in Hollywood. Done yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. Again, listen to Herman's music here. He's just a, a, a uh, he just tour used, de force. used drums. Of this is among his most lively scores, isn't it, Steve? Yes, and yeah. it's interesting. The more, the longer he wrote film scores, the the simpler his devices often become. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean he he realized that he could score very successfully by not writing a lot of busy music necessarily. Uh, he did when he needed to for a score, but you'll often hear slow moving chords or repeated figures, so-called ostinatos, happening uh, for a suspense device. But here he writes a, a score that, although extremely different from what an Eric Wolfgang Korngold would have done, or a Max Steiner, is, is just as valid in its excitement. And again, he's really putting you inside the drama. He said that, that, that the first and most important thing that a, a composer in film should do is put you inside the drama and, and make the experience one between the audience and uh, what the filmmaker intended, and that's certainly what he does in this film. Ray, what, was, what are some of your memories of Bernard Herrmann as a person? Oh, well, he was a, 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 I couldn't be more pleased when he came on the picture. Uh, we were a little worried at first because uh, when he first came in to see the the rushes, uh, Charles and I thought he had the reputation of if he doesn't like something, he'd say, why do you show me this hogwash, you know? And he used stronger words than that. But uh, uh, so we were a little worried, but the picture was so incomplete when we showed it to him that uh, but it, we had enough in it that it, it titillated his... Uh, his uh, uh, musical sense, and he consented to do it. 
Had you designed your creatures by that point? No, some of them no. were in, and some were just a pole. Uh -huh. But uh, he saw the storyboards. And, and he had enough to, uh, to draw from to yeah. know that he could do something with it. Yeah. That's so great. that's why, but he didn't do the score, write, actually write the score until the picture was finished. I suppose he preferred that, didn't he, Steve? He didn't want to get in the middle of a, of a film and try to do something, or was he working back and forth? It, well, with you, Hitchcock, he was working on films from the very beginning, and, and similarly with Wells, because they had such a long history that he was right. involved. Yeah. But at other times, I mean, and probably more often than not, he saw a film that was essentially finished, and he liked that too, because, of course, he could see what was there and, mm. uh, and, and respond to that. Yeah. So, Ray, on all four of the but, films that you did with Benny, he waited until the films were completely edited and, and ready to be scored before that he came on. That was the best on. way because it goes through many changes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And things are cut out and, and uh, you have to bridge them. And so sometimes they have to write on the spot. Mm -hmm. Does anybody do that today? Or is that a lost art? <laughs> oh, save us, magician. Save us. Well, I don't think Herman could work in film today because so many people would be weighing in on the music. He would have just have done what he sometimes mm. did in those days, which is simply walk out of a room and people would think that he was he'd <laughs> gone to get some water or use the restroom. He, no, he just left because he didn't like what he was hearing. So just he was done. If a, if a meeting yeah. wasn't going the way he wanted on something, he was done. <laughs> no, I can't imagine him working in today's environment. I think, uh, sadly, he passed away many years ago in the 70s after right. working on Taxi Driver. But I can't imagine him working... In today's environment, it's so, there's so many people who would have to have an opinion, and I, know, I, the, I couldn't the, imagine him agreeing yeah. with any of them. If, well, if fortunately, our budgets were low enough that nobody interfered with it. That's right. You were so you were, the studio pretty much left you alone then to do yes, your Yes, we did, and we did it away from the studio. I always had my my special effects stage in a store miles away from the studio. Where was the Sinbad one set up, Ray? The post-production stage. Where were you? In where, 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 when you made when you made this picture? Where did you uh, set gosh, up shop? I don't, it's you don't so long exactly? ago. <laughs> okay. I think it was right close to my house. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had a, a store I rented in an old market that had uh -huh. been defunct, and and uh, uh, I I so needed plenty of room I for the throw, the throw, projector, a yep. long throw for the projector. So when, when you went to Europe, though, when you began staying in Europe with Gulliver, you would work inside a small area of a soundstage at Shepperton or Pinewood? Sometimes, or yes. So I, you wouldn't I, have to rent uh, a place? or No, I, I worked in the studio because I wasn't uh, interfered with there. Right. But the unions were very strong, and uh, uh, I didn't want to get involved with that. But the studios didn't demand seeing assemblies of the shots or the pictures or weigh in on no, Cyclops designs no. or we uh, we were never interfered with. We we did what we thought and and that was it. Well, they were this was they awesome. were very smart to leave you alone, and we were very yeah. fortunate that they did. Well, which I think is a real you know, especially in in regard oh to the God. kind of way. Well, that's another things... reason I like to work alone. Not yes. only that, I shot these in uh, in a rowboat. <laughs> when there was a storm oh. with an IMO camera. <laughs> really? Oh. <laughs> this was a stock shot. But this was all done on the dock. You At know, Barcelona? Or in Barcelona uh -huh. Bay. We, they, they wouldn't take the boat out because it almost capsized. Oh this is where the fire department was spraying everybody with hoses. Yeah, and with the horrible water from, <laughs> from the, the harbor. Dead rats and everything <laughs> in the water. Poor Kerwin got sick for a couple of days. Oh, dear. Well, because he had his mouth open when the, when he was yelling and when he was yelling, and 
the Spanish people probably are more accustomed to that uh, type of water. But <laughs> now, in Ken Kolb's original draft, or one of this, his, I shot. Uh, oh. You shot that. But wasn't there going to be some? There were going to be some sirens uh, that you were going to animate. Yeah, I at was, one point, and, and then I decided to cut it out because, because it would have been too time. We had a, a tight budget and and uh, a quick schedule. Mm -hmm. Probably just as well because it moves the story along faster. They, we we know what they're supposed to be. Yeah, I, I wanted to do a shot of uh, some a mermaid type creature sitting on a rock, making wailing noises, but uh, we didn't have time to do that. This was the same actor in another in another role. <laughs> now, is Wilkie just moving the camera back and forth here, or is yeah. there something? It's not on a gimbal it's or anything. It's on a gimbal. Oh, it's on a gimbal. Or, so. uh, by hand. Maybe way. by hand, huh? This was on the gimbal. Mm -hmm. The only one who, wasn't, who isn't affected is Golar, who hasn't got a brain. <laughs> the he's, waves he's hitting just... the men were a little thin, but... Mm. Uh, we didn't care, We couldn't Ray. afford no. a dump tank at that time. No, I don't think any of us cared. So they had buckets full of water they would throw at them. <laughs> Off scene. Jerry had to be very careful about his angles so that it wouldn't look like it was in a harbor. So that was all off the cuff at the moment when mm -hmm. they refused to take the boat out. Mm. Well, he and Wilkie Cooper must have gotten along very well because of oh, yes, their professional, so. their yeah. backgrounds. And Wilkie had worked with Hitchcock before this, so uh, he had been involved with a variety of different projects and just the natural talent that both of them brought to it. Well, you got a lot of mileage out of that rowboat. <laughs> Tell ya. I don't know why I didn't get sick in that <laughs> boat. I was with an IMO. Now, miniature, miniature island with the real water. Real water. Uh, crossbow will be assembled and ready within the hour. Keep the men at the crossbow. I would rather go with. Who you. built the miniatures for you? Uh, we, we built them in our studio. Oh, you did. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of assistance, you you pretty much work alone. But George Lofgren. I had George Lofgren on this picture. Yeah. And, and he, what did he, he do? Well, he made help make some props. He was a, a prop man in the union, so. He helped a lot, and we were great friends. The face on the cave is uh, is a matte painting, and then the, the no, cave. it's miniature, a miniature. Right? It's a miniature. Miniature dubbed in. Oh, I see. Now that's a miniature. That's a miniature. Except we for only the wheel. One, one wheel. wheel is uh, real. Wonderful. I saw this crossbow many years ago at Fort Ackerman's place, and the actual bow part is made out of rubber, so it could be animated. Yes, <laughs> which is wonder. Oh, which is wonderful. And and how else would you? And where was this pass that uh, they were uh, this, We had a lot of trouble because the sound batteries went out. We had to take twelve big, heavy batteries and. Uh, we lost the sound, so this all had to be dubbed later. Oh, all of this is dubbed. May the powers of good protect all of Oh, we had a lot of trouble because everything was so primitive. Now, this is one location, which is on uh, the Mallorca. entrance to the Mallorca. caves of Mallorca, right? And then the reverse is... This, uh, this is Mallorca. As too. well, okay. Trentus de Perez. 
but if he were if Sinbad were really walking uh, walking down to the base of those steps, he'd be walking on on the street, wouldn't he? No. In the, isn't there isn't there a street down here at the at no, the end? Oh, no, oh, not I thought at there all. was. Oh. No, that's it's just a staircase coming down to the uh, to the beach. And that staircase oh, is actually there. It wasn't built. It by was the there. Set, so yeah, we didn't build it. That no. goes into the cave itself. Yeah. But that was a great valley. It hadn't been photographed very often. Oh, and it's beautiful. We used it again in in uh, Golden Voyage. Well, most of your films during this period, between 1958 and the middle 60s, were using locations that nobody had ever used before. Yeah, we tried to. That's yeah. what we. One reason we finally moved to Europe because mm -hmm. we got fresh locations the television hasn't used. Yeah. I wanted to put buildings, uh, air, air, uh, strange buildings all on the top here, but then we decided not to. Because we had to do it so quickly, everything had to be done quickly. Mm -hmm. This was a different location. Still in Spain, though. Still in Spain, but a different, completely different. This, uh, is, is this not the same river that turns up in Mysterious Island, the same location? It may be, yes. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Thank you, Gola. Why so miserly? We can fill the skin from the pool when it's empty. That's right. This water is poison. The man who lets it touch his lips will be dead in a moment. Poison? Would you care to try it? One of Herman's favorite sounds, low woodwinds and then <laughs> brass and percussion. And he used that in a similar way in Journey to the Center of the Earth mm -hmm. the following year, didn't he? Yes, he, he uh, along with some organs and uh, uh, some unusual instruments for that as well. Maybe worth mentioning that he had just scored Vertigo a few months earlier the same year. He had done that at the very beginning of 58 and followed uh -huh. it with, I believe, the Naked and the Dead war film and then this. So he was having a... Very good, diverse year in 1958. He and Hitchcock were still very, very close very at close. that point. It took a few more years for the yes. problems to occur. Fortunately for us, several more years. Yes. I'd hate to be hit with that club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's, Herman's got an interesting theme coming up. It's a six. It's a six-note progression. You know the one. You obviously know the one because you know this intimately. When they go running back to the cave, but it sound. It, it's. I think there's no emphasis on any of the notes, but sometimes when I listen to it, it sounds like the emphasis is on the second note and sometimes on the third. And whenever, and I don't understand that phenomenon. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I, Herman was extremely good at writing music that didn't, and one thing I'll say is that you'll hear it in this film and certainly in the Hitchcock films at the same time, is the lack of resolution is really the key to the success of his uh, suspense music, or one of them is the fact mm -hmm. that, as Martin Scorsese said, it's like a whirlpool that you're constantly mm -hmm. falling into, mm -hmm. whether it's it's often you know falling figures, sometimes ascending ones that are mysterious, but you're, you're often falling in, in this repetitive... Uh, pattern of notes that just kind of suck you in and pull yeah. you in and sometimes he'll change the emphasis but usually he'll take a, a repeated figure again they call it an ostinato mm -hmm. and he'll add musical voices under it so there'll be this suspense device and then low str or high string note will play against it and build and build and grow until you just can't bear the tension much of vertigo is is mm. devised around that kind of musical concept and here he will uh, often have very slow, almost lugubrious chords setting up a, a sense of, of 
of, of menace and and he doesn't try to speed up the film it's interesting he's he, it's interesting he said that sometimes it was important to slow down the images to not constantly have motion and energy but to allow you to feel the heaviness the sense of waiting because then when something happens whether it's physical motion or something in the music there's a, a there's that much more power Contrast, to it. Yeah. or something like like this maybe something about yes. to happen right here ah uh, yes <laughs> This, uh, this this is one of those moments where we should be, you know, Mr. Tippett and myself should be peppering Ray with questions, and we're just both sitting here like kids with our mouths hanging it's open, too just fun amazed. To watch. It is too fun to watch. <laughs> but the thing that I you know, always come back to is is that just the amazing amount of work that you know you've done on your own, and you know I think it really differentiates this the object that this the seventh voyage of Sinbad is is just such a testament to, to craftsmanship and the work, you know, and vision of, you know, singular identities rather than corporate <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, interests. Right. Because it's, it's something that, that, you know, these days is very rare. It's just amazing, amazing work. To the studio's credit, Columbia Pictures used Ray's pre-production art for this to promote the film. Mm -hmm. Six mm -hmm. months before it was released, they put, every month or so, they would put in one of his pieces of artwork, whether it was a Cyclops, which didn't look like this Cyclops, but it was Ray's original pre-production piece. So for six months from about June to December of 58, every month there would be in one of the trade papers, not in the newspapers, but in one of the local trade papers in Hollywood, something announcing a Christmas release of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And just the image that Ray had designed, whether it's the dragon or the Cyclops, a remarkable use of the artist's work wasn't the media wasn't the marketing people at Columbia. It was actually Ray's artwork. Mm. But they had enough faith in this project, even then, six months before it was released, to announce it to the public. Now, that that was very unusual for its time, and still is to a certain extent. You don't see a lot of advertising art from, um, from people involved with big productions that are used to sell a film before it's released. Sometimes afterwards, you see magazines like Cinefix will include things. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, Quite a remarkable change of pace for that era. And then everything was promoted for Christmas. It was a Christmas release. Parade magazine had a full-page ad in color for this. And it was quite a remarkable time for all of us when we were looking forward oh, yeah. to this movie. My goodness. No, I did a little bit of homework um, and, and screened a, a DVD copy of this with a little, a little clicker device to count the number of shots that, that you did. <laughs> and it, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200-something. But one of the things that's, that's um, you know, very apparent about how you were able to generate so much work, you're very careful about how you reuse setups and will stay on a setup, but you never get a feeling that it's being melt at all. It, it, it just has each shot and setup has its own magical quality that, uh, that really allows for a huge amount of volume. Well, a lot of these shots were uh, continuous shots, and then the film editor cut them uh, in to put close-ups in here and there. So that made it simpler. I would finish a shot in a day, and then uh, they would cut it up into maybe uh, four or five shots. 
Five shots a day is not a bad average. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'd get 30 feet, sometimes only 18 Mm. frames. Mm. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that you know, to point out that if if that's the way that you're approaching a performance, and while a stop-motion animator is on a stage doing the animation, it is actually like a a dance that you are doing, a performance in an altered time and space. Uh, But... The more continuity you have and the more time you go on, you can develop and develop and develop your performance so that it's not just a cut. You're not just going after the cut. And I think that's what makes a lot of Ray's work really resonate. No, I think that's true. And I think, I think that, you know, that uh, that is why the, these multiple cuts don't, you know, uh, don't die, you know? I mean, that they don't suddenly become, they don't become foursome because, you know, they're... Uh, that, we is. shot that in England. Mm. This was shot in Spain. She is standing on what? On a big rock, she is. Ay, ay, ay. And then I put her on top of the case. Now, there's a continuity gaff coming up here that always amused me. You know the one? Yeah. It always had a, <laughs> it a amuses mo- everybody, apparently. All of these are the first take. Mm. And I think that explains the continuity shot that we're about to see, that... Uh, always get now it gets a laugh. I don't recall laughing when I first saw it, but I think it now, never it never yeah. it, it never struck me as as funny at the time. What? It, it's oh the uh, the opening of that, the door. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, yes. but the people laugh. I don't see anything funny. In it, but <laughs> well, I think it's just because it, you you give the impression they, they that she, she goes, goes flying. flying across the ground. Yes. <laughs> and I can just imagine Nathan Duran looking at this. Oh, I only <laughs> needed one more shot. One more mat shot. <laughs> one of, more cutaway. Of, of Kerwin coming up behind teeny tiny Catherine. But. <laughs> But it's, again, it's not something any of us cared about when we saw the movie, no, and, and no. I don't—I don't think I became aware of it for a long, long time. Not until the people didn't laugh at the first time. No, I don't think it. Uh. I don't recall anybody even mentioning it in any reviews or any commentary about this. It's just an amusing thing to look back on and wonder what could have been done to save her from flying. Ooh. Ooh. See, I think it's more about the caress one, that Kerwin's getting on the way It needed one more shot there. It was too late when we got there. Well, if that's the only thing we find that's slightly wrong, I mean, that, that's not bad, really. And it's not even slightly wrong, for that matter. He's no longer roasting. That's good. And let's... let's... Let's get drunk and, and, how do you, and attack uh, a cyclops. How do you have courage when you're being roasted alive? <laughs> <laughs> this is some of the best. This is some of the best pantomime I've ever seen in this kind of work. This, Look at the composite here. This is just gorgeous work. It's gorgeous, and, and what the cyclops is doing. Trying to know. reach behind his back to grab that spear. Oh my God. How would you rehearse this pantomime yourself, Ray, as you're trying to d- determine what the beats are for the for the Cyclops in that scene that we were just looking at, where he walks in from left to right and he gets a spear thrown in his back and he reaches and he reaches and he turns and you just there's so many different uh, performance beats to it. How did you go about determining? Well, which... I had a, a, a duplicate print in uh, in the moviola by my side, so I could run it forward and backward and count the frames. So I knew pretty well how much uh, I needed for a pause or uh, uh, everything. But how would you actually rehearse the pantomime? The actual how 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 did that come up? I mean, how did you 
You, did you just do it? or I just did it. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's one of the things that's not in the script. You, you, one pose leads to another, and uh, based on what's happening in that particular scene. But I recall you saying, on, on, in some instances, on Mighty Joe Young, you would actually pantomime the, the action of, of it, Joe. Would yes, you ever do that? but that was many years earlier, uh, when uh, I didn't need to you, sit down and go through the motions here. I just had it in my mind. Okay, so everything mm -hmm. was very intuitive then. It was like playing a piano. Yeah, it is, and, after you have a lot of experience. Uh -huh. So you know, you probably knew almost to the exact frame how much time you needed for. Well, each. I could judge that by running the, a, a duplicate print on the moviola mm -hmm. of the background. Yeah, and I, I think it's a really interesting point. Just to underscore is that, yeah, you know, what Ray's saying is that it's his animation intuition that's leading this performance. This is not yeah. an intellectualized he's not, thing. He's not that? looking at reference. He's going right from his brain mm -hmm. onto the celluloid. But that comes from experience. Yes. And now the because, Cyclops is about to meet his demise. Because you've spent your you've spent your your uh, career and life studying, you know, in 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 your own way, you know, yeah. uh, how movement works and everything. So you're very conversant with it. Now that's the end of the first of two Cyclopses, or Cyclops. Yeah. We're going to see a slightly different design later on, and you deliberately did that so that you get the sense for the audience that there was an island of Cyclops. Yeah, but a lot of people don't realize that he has two horns on the top. Well, we're going to point that out to them so that they do realize it, aren't we? Yes. Free us. You made no attempt to open the cage. I do not understand the power of this lamp. But if we he isn't quite as broad-shouldered as the first Cyclops either. I don't think the first Cy—I don't think the first Cyclops could have been beaten by the dragon. Probably <laughs> no. not. Probably not. Not that I'm giving anything. We away. had to get rid of him by falling yeah. off a cliff. Yeah. Here it was raining, and uh, really? the prop truck went the wrong way uh, on another part of the island. So we, Jerry and I, had to cut wooden swords out of the wood pile <laughs> and give them. But fortunately, it was far enough away that you wouldn't notice. Was raining too. This must have been drizzling. That's what happens when you're working on a picture and you're shooting and it's raining. Yes. You shoot in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> and hope that it doesn't show up. Poor Ron. Allah knows many ways of dealing with hungry men. Let's throw his sword down for him <laughs> so he'll have that later. Watching that, I was thinking how different the score would be if, say, a Max Steiner or a Korngold had done it. We really would have caught the the falling body and mm. even probably the the sword. But Herman really didn't do thing where he's hitting the action. He gives mm. you an impression more. Uh, it was his preference to give you a general mood and a feeling. So in in uh, Steiner's case, in, in his early years, particularly if someone was walking, step exactly. step step step, you would hear the music step step yes. step. Whereas Herman was. Did you just oppose that in uh, from an intellectual? point of view or was it just something he'd never thought about doing or? well I, I, I he certainly was aware of it as a technique but I think just had a preference for capturing mood and atmosphere I mean he'll catch action certainly when things happen but he's very careful about when he does it never worked a click track well he preferred not to and sometimes he liked to show people that he could do it without it you know, he, he was offered the chance I know a lot Fox of people made often. fun of Steiner's uh, that type of music but 
it worked in many cases. Oh, absolutely. But when sure. other people did it, it didn't work out the same way. Well, I think he knew just about how much of it to use right. yeah. and where to stop. That was what was his genius. And here he's taking the suggestion of both their hitting as well as the sound the creature might make to create his, his musical portrait of the creature. And this is the Baby Rocks theme. What did you make the egg out of? A plaster. It was a plaster shell. And you were animating the bird from behind at this point. Is that about right? No, from the front. From the front. Uh -huh. So, but the, did the uh, the uh, down on the bird? Oh no, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, tried not to put my hand. So on it was always from behind uh, the bird, right? Yeah. Or the side, uh, yeah, so it yeah. wouldn't be touched. Would you be allowed to kill a baby bird today? I no. think so. How did you? How did you get? And where? I thought you were going to ask where where the puppets down came from. Where? where uh, we. Uh, we don't want to. We don't want to bring that up. No, no. we won't discuss <laughs> okay. that. <laughs> okay. You can leave that to your imaginations, folks. Well, unfortunately, you have to do those things occasionally. Well, there'll be a disclaimer on the DVD. No baby rocks were killed during this uh, production. So no, we'd get persecuted if we did. That's was correct. that? Uh, do I recall properly that that was how uh, that some of the work Lofgren would do? He, had, he was a taxidermist. He was he? a taxidermist originally. A very clever one too. And on fur, he designed a, a, a fur where you could substitute the skin for with rubber, mm -hmm. without losing the fur quality. And that's how the Cyclops lower legs were yeah. created. So you could stretch it over, the, and that would bend. Mm with an armature. And what sort of wool was, the, what sort of fur was the Cyclops' legs? I don't remember, oh, yeah. so okay. long ago. I don't I just thought yeah, might. Some fur I got from a taxiderma shop. Speaking of the Cyclops, you used the armature from your previous creature, the Emir, for the Cyclops' armature generally. Didn't you use the basic a armature? A lot of it, A yes. lot of it, not well, Some all of, of it I had to build on. Of course, the tail wasn't reused, but no. the, the body itself and some of the armwork. I, I always use parts and bits, mm -hmm. but you can't do it on the whole thing. You have no. to base it on the anatomy of what the, works the for new you. creature. Right, and the, a couple of tentacles from your octopus. Oh, this was shot, the, the this studio was shot inside the... The studio. This was that girl, or was that all Kathy? That was a Grant? double. Yeah, double. And then behind the Kathy was pregnant and didn't want to slide down. Yeah. Now this is all where Richard Ira yeah. appears, and this was done in this in the U.S. I'm assuming, right? With Richard, Ray. Yeah. This is all where because he wasn't overseas. No, this was done in the studio. Mm -hmm. She's just a she's just adorable. As John as John Bird once referred to her, she's as, as Arabian as apple pie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was a little worried about it because he looked so bucolic. Uh, I've never but, seen a bucolic genie. I was talking about her, but I mean, but I guess that goes for him too. But because uh, this is that's, a, that's a look a, with with Richard Eyer and Catherine and Catherine Grant on the same screen. That's a lot of adorableness to be. <laughs> cramming into one frame, you know? But uh, I, you know, I, I didn't mind, I didn't mind the kid, you know, the kid uh, as a genie when I was a boy, you know? I mean, it was like, I mean, it was good enough for Robert Louis Stevenson in Treasure Island, you know? Sure. It was, uh, you can put, you can put a boy we in a pirate picture. We were a little picture. worried about mm. it first, but I was at least. 
I would uh, thought you, of, of some sort of exotic. You're used to Re Rex Ingram or something, uh, and, yeah. and and, and uh, big macho genie. But well, Richard was already by this time he was established. He had done two or three films that Desperate we knew. Desperate Hours and and uh, the Invisible Boy, uh, the, the next film after Forbidden Planet, would use the Robbie the Robot. And but we knew him. We were of of that age group. We were aware of him, and he seemed to be fine. Nobody was thinking of. Authenticity in terms of his appearance, it just looked like he. Well, and they're very there. clever with the double voice on him too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that that's it's a great sound. When the big that is small shall again become tall. Was this something that Ken Kolb contributed, Ray? Yes, it was uh, on the screenplay. Uh, I never, uh, yeah, he it was in the script and he contributed it. That's nice. Nice script and very basic and very very simple and storybook like. We had uh, we got many but, times we got criticized for making such simple stories, but you know fairy tales are simple. Yeah, you can't go making complicated uh, psychological things in a, a, a picture like this. No, I think this you lose one, your yeah. audience. Do you recall how long it took to get the final draft of the script? The what? Do you recall how long it took to get the final draft of the script once Kolb started writing? I don't remember. Yeah. It took quite a while because it went through many changes. Mm. Even on the set, we would uh, overnight write some pages in, in a different color and put them in the script. And Bob Williams had been on this before Ken Kolb got involved. He, he, would, he was on 20 Million. Bob Williams yeah. had done a draft. I don't know how complete his draft was, but he submitted a draft, and then you and Charles looked it over and decided you needed something else, and that's when Kolb was brought in, wasn't it? Yes, we tried to, uh, but they do go through changes, mm -hmm. you know that. Uh, it's about a year's work, yeah. I suppose, off and on. By the way, I was going to say that the fairy tale aspect of it was something Herman really related to. He said that the music had to have purity and simplicity. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's you know, uh, again, a... Uh, uh, a mark of, of Matthew's performance as well as and 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 Grant's, uh, and I mean, and the whole picture I think is is suffused with it, isn't it? You know, because it is it's it's very earnest and imaginative and uh, really hasn't got a mean bone in its body unless you count all these monsters, <laughs> of Mr. Harryhausens who are doing some very naughty things. <laughs> and here's the frantic music of the giant rock, the the parent, which is very typical of Herman's style. It is, and if you looked at these notes uh, on paper, you would just it would just be little, almost a little more than a scale, ba da da da, -da or just going up, you know, perfect fifths or full octaves. And it's repetitive it's without it. being tedious. Exactly. That's, that, that's the interesting thing about Herman's style. That is the that's another key to Herman is. And uh, could any. Thing sound more like a giant flying creature than this. Yeah, score. yeah, yeah. Absolutely no, because it's got it's got it's got that swooping quality to it. Well, he was always very sensitive, also to staying out of the way mm. of what needed to be heard in a film, and not. I mean, his music's very out there, but it never dominates in a way that it gets in the way, even when it's big. And he wasn't afraid to get big, particularly in these films. No, it's tragic that when he was on Torn Curtain for that brief time that he actually mm. created something for that film which should have been in there mm -hmm. with the murder of the... Yes, the last Hitchcock Paul, movie he last did, last Hitchcock yes. film. And now the film contains no music during that scene, and yeah. you, when you know that it was there, or would have been there had Herman not right. been fired, 
Uh, it's tragic because you can see that he was right and Hitchcock and his underlings and whoever was working at Universal was dead wrong because Herman had a style and a taste that he just seemed like Ray. He seemed to know where, what to do at what time and yeah. what worked and what wouldn't work. Yeah. And the fact that Hitchcock bowed to the powers that be at Universal um, that right. scene is a tragedy. Very, that mm -hmm. scene, by the way, was very hard to get because uh, we, it was the end of the day and the sun kept uh, putting the... The, the set in the shade by the time we set up. And then we had to move everything up to the next, uh, about uh, uh, 30, 20 feet away. And by the time everything was set up again, the sun would cover that. So we had to move about three times to get that shot. Well, that must have been. And that was which one, the shot of the feet? Of uh, the feet, yeah. yeah. Yeah, shooting exterior locations, the last three hours of the day are, <laughs> oh, are never fun. We had so much trouble on that. I wonder how we ever got the picture made. Well, I think Wilkie's personality, Wilkie had such an, a pleasant personality, he probably was able to deal with it. Not, yeah, not, he was without uh, causing nothing hysteria. Nothing bothered him. <laughs> no, he wouldn't pull his hair out or worry about it. He was just roll with it. I remember how, how shockingly deep that wound looked on him when I was a kid, you know? I thought... They, how did they really stick a stick a hole in a guy? You know, I mean, it's like uh, well, his rib cage. It's like well, that this was shot is in uh, the studio many months later. Oh, that was this uh, this close up. I'll be darned, because we needed a close up there. This is see his hair is more groomed. Uh, yeah, this was shot in Spain. Amazing. But sometimes there's not enough time in the day to shoot a final close-up and you say, well, let's do it later. Yeah. And you do it some, you shoot a background plate quickly and, and hope that uh, you can shoot it later. Mm. Now he's going to get the genie out of the pot. <laughs> the pot. <laughs> I remember when you met Richard Iyer for the first time, Ray, the first thing you said to him was, why, Richard? You'll never get back in that lamp again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Not that he was overweight or anything. He'd just become a grown man. And well, uh, <laughs> I didn't know him at that No, point. you didn't know. He's a delightful gentleman. Yeah. Just retired from teaching. I believe he was in Bishop, California for most of the last 40 years. Wow. Delightful young man. Boy, this sure is moving. No, we don't want to talk about that, right? We're just watching the images. Mm. This is Terenzius de Paris again on Mallorca. And an actual cave? No, or just it was a, just a just dent a, in the rock. A dent in the rock, <laughs> yeah. He pretended it yep. was a cave. Yep. He ran straight into a wall there. Yep. <laughs> That's dedication. We didn't hear the thud. We mm. just... Uh, we, we Kerwin we... ran in and stopped suddenly. <laughs> and this is where? This is in Mallorca. Mallorca. This is in the caves of Arta. Yeah. This is a set this here. This is in the set, yeah. yeah. But Wilkie lit this in a fantasy way, didn't he? He lit yes. different colored lights. So he used here's skeletons. A, here's a dragon coming out. Oh, yes. Beautiful. Go ahead. Turn it. Inside the cave, you will find another wheel with which to loose the dragon so that he may guard the entrance. That was shot in Spain, and, and the close-up was shot... In the studio. So the, the back of the genie is not really Richard. That's no, someone over that's there. Somebody else. Yeah, okay. Again, we didn't care at the time. Nobody noticed. 
And what was the reason for that? Was it he hadn't been cast, or well, we did hadn't he hadn't been cast at the time, and they didn't want to bring him over just for a couple of shots. Yeah. Now, how does now now I know it's off screen, Ray, but how does the rope on the windlass attach to the chain on the dragon exactly? Uh, <laughs> uh, wrong, I'm a, I'm wrong a question. Rotary thing oh, is it rotary? Oh, yeah. I see. I see. Behind the wall. Uh, I got gotcha. you. The framus. <laughs> I forgot the framus. Why didn't they blast Sinbad with his fire? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just wanted, right. I was just asking. I was just asking you the easy questions. Well, don't ask <laughs> that. Well, for one thing, it would have shortened the film by at least fifteen minutes because um, we would have had to deal with Kerwin. Would have been in flames. That would have been the end of Kerwin. Kerwin oh. Sinbad. Now, was the dragon armature partially your beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, or was that a totally different armature? No, by it was now? completely, completely different. Completely different. Okay. Yeah, completely. He was resembles built from it. scratch. Uh -huh. Is there anything that remains of these puppets today? Just the head, which is in Berlin, the skull of that puppet. But the skeleton is still the very skeleton much was used for you. something else. I can't remember what. But the cyclops yeah. and the dragon, the rubber is all disintegrated. A lot of it, yeah. Talos is still whole, but he's got holes. Some of the rubber is deteriorated. This was a set. And especially the interior is is yeah, is quite was, is quite a nice one. This was uh, you said this was in Sevilla, in a studio in Sevilla. In the Sevilla film studio. Uh -huh. yeah. I knew I could trust your Sinbad to bring the lamp to And as she did in in a great great bit of score coming up here that isn't on the album, I don't think. But Kathy Grant playing rather big for the long shots, which I thought was quite nice. You know, she she's, had to. We had yeah. to. So, so, otherwise, you wouldn't look there. Right, right, right. And I am, and I, as she was doing in the in the shot on the ship, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, but it's just it's wonderful for the size, you know. It's wonderful for her size. It's really well, nice pantomime. We need to have Stephen talk a little bit about uh, Benny's uh, skeleton score of the, the castanets. Yeah, it's probably the most uh, famous musical sequence along with the main title and uh, something that really shows Herman's genius as an orchestrator. One of his favorite composers was Hector Berlioz, who in a, a piece like the Symphony Fantastique had created these wonderful instrumental effects. And here's an example of Herman doing that himself. Uh, listen for along with the, the brass, you'll, uh, you'll hear trumpets, but also you'll hear castanets, you'll hear a xylophone, uh, an instrument that certainly has been associated historically with uh, skeletons for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not so much that he's creating something that's never been done, but he does it in a way that is so fresh and ingenious, and by combining the low brass and then the higher sounds and uh, the, this, this very clean percussion sound, it's absolutely brilliant. And also, he turns it into almost a dance, and that's something he liked to do often in film. If you think I of the always main... call it a castanet concerto. There we go. <laughs> uh, a year later for the main title of North by Northwest, he creates this wonderful, uh, real, real, what he called the crazy dance between Cary Grant and the world that was about to take place. Uh, and uh, so, again, he, he conceives sometimes the greatest uh, of action sequences in the films he worked on as a kind of wonderful, crazy dance. Well, used the Fandango a lot. That's right, they, exactly, yeah. in North by Northwest. And didn't Disney use the xylophone yeah. way back in the 30s That's for right. the skeleton dance yes, in one of his right, little... Um, in the early Silly Symphonies. Silly Symphonies, yes. yeah. So the xylophone has always had something of a symbolic recollection for exactly. us. Exactly. We, we always think of it as the perfect instrument for anything with a right. skeleton involved. And here we have another example with a living skeleton. 
And another great theme is the theme he gives Torrin Thatcher because it's classic Hermit. It's a very short thematic motif of just a few notes, but when you hear it, it absolutely conjures up the, the character, the, the magic, but the danger and the mystery of this figure. Now, Ray, you had, you, you had him put his hand in what looked to be a blue screen right down on, right down on a level surface. Now, what were, you, what were you doing there? How did he, what did he rest his hand on? Was it just on a piece of blue? On a piece of black cloth. Be, oh, black cloth. Yeah. Ah, okay. Then we made a high contrast mat, and the optical printer put it together. Were your opticals done in London at, on this? Film? I can't remember. Can't I remember. Think, think there were. Later on, you, you did most of, after Gulliver, for sure, you did them. Technicolor with, did a lot Technicolor, of and you had the, put them the traveling mat uh, sodium process. Yeah, we uh, used the yellow backing on yellow Gulliver. Backing. Mm -hmm. I just want to point out, too, previously as we were coming up on this whole scene, as they were walking entering into this room, the uh, foreground foreshadowing skeleton that was mm -hmm. hung from the ceiling. That's right. That we didn't don't know what its purpose was for other than just being a, an accoutrement that a magician would have in his place. But soon to find out, well. yes, he will soon be there. The cinematography on this is just stunning. I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of just how beautiful it is and how much fun Wilkie must have had on this. He must have just had a ball. Mm. You, you okay? <laughs> you don't, have nothing to say? Don't touch the microphone. I have nothing to say. <laughs> you shall have it when we are safely at the ship. And again, notice the absence of music, which is going to make it so much stronger when it returns. That's right. Yeah, you can't have continuous music. And then it starts here as the skeleton drops. Stern face. Don't count the ribs of the skeleton. No, it's just that jaw muscles alone are powering this skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they are. We won't be distracted. And the skeleton has the Harryhausen brow. It's frowning. Yeah. It's not yeah. a, mean. It's a, a very it's a mean, mean skeleton. skeleton. It's not traditional yeah. uh, medical laboratory skeleton. It's actually... Now, he's saying something else besides kill him here, and I don't know what it is. The well, line's that was been changed. Dubbed. No, he said kill him. Did he really? Okay. With his lips closed, more or less. It didn't look like kill him, but we'll have to get uh, someone to slow the disc down. Huh? Now, this whole, the choreography of this was quite an arranged deal, wasn't it? Yeah, we had Enzo Musumeci. He taught Kerwin how to use the sword. How much time did you spend with Kerwin before you went to the final shoot of oh, We just had two? three or four rehearsals. Only with, really, yeah. With uh, Enzo, and then... He knew where to do it. And would these be shot as shots about this length for this particular action here to get the right beats, or would you shoot much wider coverage? I would, break, I, I would shoot a little more and, and uh, just use a certain part of it. Now, the music is frantic and wonderful and perfect. For this exactly and all the quiet build up or and then the absence of music herman just loved to have a very strong dramatic almost shocking effect on a sequence like this and then just really goes to town he knows that this is this is where he comes in as he once said to to a director 
When you were setting this up and imagining it, did you know that it was going to be this good? What do you mean? The scene. It's just such an amazing tour de force that nobody has ever seen anything like this before. Did you Did you think, I'm going to knock their socks off with this? Or, it, or, or no. were you going, did you keep your fingers crossed and go like, oh, I hope this works? No, I just said, uh, you know, I'm going to do this because I like skeletons. <laughs> and we had to get them up on a high place, so I used this spiral staircase that didn't lead anywhere. <laughs> Wonderful. When he slammed the door, he hurt her elbow. She got it caught between the door. Oh, and no. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, oh. Sword's no danger, just closing the door. But, yeah, I echo Phil's sentiment on that because it is it is so thrilling. It was so unique. And you can see Torin get his, his sleeve caught on this thing, and he decides, am I going to break this prop or not? <laughs> yep, I'll break it. You know, <laughs> Director didn't call cut, so... Trapped. We, we must summon the genie quickly. From the from the land beyond beyond, from the world past hope and fear, I bid you, genie, now appear. Here's the lighting that Wilkie did give us. It's a fantasy lighting. It's unnatural but beautiful at the same time. It's perfect for this scene. Help us escape from this cave. I shall try, oh princess. I shall try. But I won't try too hard because all, you, all you get is a rope. I know. People <laughs> laugh now at that scene. But we're not laughing. I just want everybody to know that. We're having a good time. Well, what 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 I've heard them laugh at, I think unfairly, is him saying, Your promise, you know, the genie may be may may die a horrible, agonizing death in the hot lava, but you promised, so, but, you know, it, it, it still, it's, uh, it was a promise, and that is important. That was the double girl hanging on his back. Ray, Bernard Herman had about two months to write this score. Do you remember when you first heard it and what your reaction was? No, I never heard it until uh, it, was, it was actually recorded in Germany. Right, yes, and what yeah. an international production. It had to be done in Germany because there was a musician strike in That's America right. at the time. Is that right? But did it, did it surprise you in a way? Were you it thrilled did, by I it? I was tickled with it because I didn't, you know, you don't know what's in a musician's mind. And uh, we didn't hear it until uh, the Russians came back. Which is sort of amazing because nowadays when everything has to be auditioned and endlessly played and sampled and recreated yes. on keyboards. And that's so clever, that, uh, that uh, falling into the lava, you know? And it was quite Done simple for you. Very simple. And, and a stock shot of lava? Stock shot of lava. And beautifully done. Now, Benny liked to have fun with you when, when you were talking about a certain scene in Mysterious Island. You had the Focarocas, the chicken-like uh, dinosaur. Yeah, and, yeah. and he said, well, I have a perfect uh, piece of music for that. I'm going to play Turkey in the Straw. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, my God. You, you were worried that that might happen. and but you, did, you trusted Benny, of course. Oh, yes. And sure enough, he didn't do that. He did something completely original and, and yeah, very. fun. He Why must, didn't he blow fire at them? Well, again, they would have shortened the film by about he, 10 minutes. He, he ran out of gas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no gas. <laughs> now, the Cyclops that shows up here, is this um, 
Was this about the same scale as the uh, the Cyclops on the beach? No, size -wise? he was smaller. He was more in scale with the dragon. So size-wise, between those two puppets, uh, this one would be about maybe, what, a foot tall? Uh, it would be a little shorter than the, the other one, yes. Which was what, like... Uh, uh, which was uh, probably uh, another head higher. So 14 or 15 inches, yeah. maybe, something like I that. think I used part of the E-mare for that one, mm. the second Cyclops. Yeah. And this, all of these puppets here, the Cyclopses and the dragons and all, were done with uh, the new, relatively new foam technology, were they not? The, the with the new what? Foam technology. You sculpted all of the, the characters in clay and made molds and injected. Yes. And yes. that was a rather new technique at that time. Uh, that, that, yeah, so, uh, they, they were cast so that you could duplicate them. Because as you know, in the original King Kong, he was very different about four times. <laughs> Did you, was it problematic for you working out all of the, the chemistry and, because you know, it gets very elaborate making the rubber puppets. Was that, did you find that, you know, to go rather smoothly or? To it be... went smoothly. Sometimes it, it uh, the, the rubber falls inside the mold if you take it out too soon. And, uh, but this, I, th I think that all went very smoothly. Yeah. Ray, this, the they shrink about 10%. Mm. So you sculpt them with that in mind, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that's why I make it about 10% fatter. Yeah. So the, some of the hard models that were stand-ins are a little stouter than the, the other one because the f foam rubber shrinks. That's a point out here, too, that all, the entire fight here was done from one, one, setup. one camera yeah. setup. Yeah. And it works great. We didn't want to shed any blood. Shed a little. I see a some. Just a little, little bit. Ray, yeah. your your skeleton fight with with Kerwin and the skeleton was the very first time that you had done a contact fight between a human being or a living creature and one of your puppets. That needed was, perfect synchronization. Was that was was that particularly daunting for you, or were you just did no, you have it all figured just, out? No, uh, just had a duplicate print in a moviola and counted. Just frames. had to work yeah. from that. It was, wasn't any more difficult than anything else. No. It was just new. Right, it yeah. just took more time because well, I had to go refer to the moviola and count the frames. I see. And I did that while I was doing it. Uh -huh. Take the princess to the longboat, quick! Yes, Captain. Come on, princess. But that skeleton scene took you three months. You said, and I think it's in your book somewhere, that you, it took you three months to animate that one scene between Kerwin and Yeah, skeleton. I don't remember how long that one, but the other one took four and a half months. The one with Jason. the seven skeletons well, yes, and understandably, Jason. yes. But this was a little miniature crossbow. With the rubber animatable arm on it, as Bill pointed yeah. out earlier. And this is Dynamation at its best. Boy, that arrow went right in there. There's some blood, of course, a little bit. Look out, Torrin Thatcher. Uh, mm. Couldn't have happened to a Crushed nicer guy. <laughs> this dragon's death is sad. It is. Most of Ray's creatures die sadly, don't they? Uh, yeah, I try to give a little sympathy with the 
death throes. What was it Eugene Laurier said about your creatures? The, oh, the beast from 20,000. He said he died like a, a solo in an opera. <laughs> <laughs> This is a different ship altogether. We, we didn't any... we didn't notice and we didn't no. care. You so. didn't at the time, yeah, but now but, you do. But now that you pointed it out. There's a wonderful Herman quote where he said uh, about this movie, I feel I was able to envelop the entire movie in a shroud of mystical innocence. Wonderful. wonderful. And I just wanted to say thank you for bringing us, uh, putting that shroud of mystical innocence around all of us as uh, we grew up watching and loving this movie. Marvelous. How, how mystical can an innocence be? <laughs> <laughs> well, if Benny Herman said it, I'm going to go along with him. Absolutely. Well, we're nearing the end of the uh, beautiful Seventh Voyage of Sinbad on its 50th anniversary it's hard to believe it's been 50 years since we all saw this film, but I want to thank Stephen Smith for your wonderful comments about Benny Herman, one of our favorite composers, and thank Bill you. Tippett, Randy Cook, both of whom were heavily influenced by this, as, along with thousands of other people. Damaged, I would and say. Damaged yeah. and... <laughs> and somehow 50 years later or only 20 years older. Only 20 years yeah. older. It's shocking, but it's magic. We're all in the, in the same room with Ray Harryhausen, the master of magic, and a legend... A living legend, as you like to... I hope I'm alive. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll all confirm that. Yes. Thanks so much for this film, Ray. This is yes. really... This was, it was a pleasure. This was the high point of my childhood. Me Wonderful. Too. High I'm point so of many of our childhoods. Thank you, Sony Pictures, Home Entertainment, for allowing us to do this. It was great fun.